Thanks for downloading this first episode of the new podcast series from Octopus Energy, where our aim is to give you real insight into the company's DNA, the way we work, the way we think, our values and our people. My name is Trudy Lewis and I'm an executive coach working with some of the team here at Octopus Energy. And together with my co-host, Russell Goldsmith, we'll be using this series to explore everything from our products and services to the technology that sits behind them and the culture that is driving us to deliver cheaper, greener energy. We've already recorded one episode on the culture of the company, but we thought we'd put this one out first, where we actually take a step back and speak to our CEO, Greg Jackson, to find out more about why he set up the company in 2015, his plans moving forward, and how on track we are to realizing his vision. So welcome, Greg. Hello, Trudy, and hello, Russell, as well. Hello, hello again. Uh, so just going back to those early days and the plans for your business, your background isn't actually in energy. So why did you think you could make a difference in this sector? I, I think, first of all, we used to run a technology business. And what we found was that it didn't matter what sector clients were in. We seemed to be able to produce technology that would help them go through the digital revolution. And, and so I think, you know, as a team, we, we were really quite comfortable looking at new sectors. And I think if you think about it, you know, the people who started Uber didn't come from Addison Lee, you know, and the people who started Amazon weren't bookstore owners. They were instead people who thought that they could bring something to that sector it wasn't already doing. And when we looked at energy, you know, look, first of all, I think it was evident that energy companies have typically in the UK and globally been bloated, inefficient, you know, certainly not massively customer centric. And so, you know, you could see there were a whole load of things you could probably do better. In fact, um, thinking about it, one of the um, one of the founding moments, there were quite a lot, by the way, but one of them was um, I'd just, I'd moved house and I'd had a, an energy bill and I opened it up. It was quite high. And so I phoned up the energy company. They said, oh, it's high because you're on a default tariff. You've moved in. We don't know. You don't have a contract with us. But don't worry. We can now put you on a contract. It'd be much cheaper. I thought, fantastic. That was easy. Anyway, I know a couple of years later, I got around to opening a bill. It was really high. And I phoned up the energy company and they said, oh, you're not in contract. And I said, no, no, I am. I, I phoned them and sorted out. And they said, no, the contract only lasts a year. And after that, you go back on a default tariff. And I, I was like, well, that's ridiculous. And he said, no, no, don't worry. I can put you back on contract now. It'll go down again. I said, no, hang on though. <laughs> so you're telling me the way this industry works for customers is that I have to phone you up every year in order to get a good deal. Right. Otherwise, you're going to put me on a crap one. And the guy was like, yeah, yeah, don't worry, but we'll put you on one now. And, and so instead of being grateful that it put me onto a, a good deal, I was really angry that their, their model was whenever you're not looking, they're hiking the price and then blaming you for not phoning them. Now, I, I was sitting in the pub whinging about this with, um, with some friends and you know, putting the world to rights. And I said, it doesn't have to be like this. And I talked about how tech could change energy and all those things. Anyway, as ever, you know, they kind of, uh, they were like, well, if you really believe it, go and do it yourself. And I thought, well, maybe we will. And, and that was one of those moments that said, we just thought we could do it better for customers. And the more we looked at it, and look, Amazon, I think it's got 300 million different products. And it's G&A kind of, you know, cost of administration is, is two to 4% of revenue. Meanwhile, energy companies have typically got two products. And by the way, they've got a pipe and a wire to take to your house and a direct debit. Amazon have got to somehow deal with the fact you might not be in when they deliver. 
And yet energy companies have a GNA typically in the UK of sort of 12 to 14%. So you just looked at that and said, that's the opportunity to use technology to drive costs down. We've already seen, and there are so many other examples of where service isn't great or it's not customer centric. And that was what gave us the kind of confidence or the impetus to believe we could do something better. I guess the last bit for me was, was about climate change. And, and, you know, the number of times I'd hear energy company CEOs blaming the green taxes for high energy bills. When we'd looked at it and we saw that they had these high administration costs and, and the technology was so poor, it was like, wow, that's, that's literally, I mean, it felt immoral to me that you've got this imperative to fight climate change. And instead of embracing it and saying, look, we're the companies that can help deliver the solution for society, you're literally blaming the solution for things that are actually caused by the fact you just haven't invested in good enough systems and, and, and efficient enough operations. Okay, well, let, let's, let's go back to writing that business plan, Greg. How did you scope the business and know what kind of investment you needed? Yeah, so I guess we very early on had sold a technology business and we'd seen how technology, we'd helped clients and through that business kind of go through the digital revolution. And when we decided to set up um, in energy uh, or to explore setting up in energy, we had the concept that look, energy companies were clearly inefficient, bloated, and didn't use technology well. And we could see the opportunity to use technology to drive down costs for customers and at the same time to improve service. Uh, but we didn't know anything about energy. And I think one of the first things that we did was uh, we actually found a group of students at London Business School. And we put an advert on the notice board, basically, um, to see if anybody fancied helping. And uh, there were some MBA students who, uh, you know, we paid to write part of their MBA on what it would take to set up an energy company. And they were able to research, you know, kind of the cash flows and things like that. So you could get a sense of what it would take. And, and I must admit, by the way, that was a double-edged sword. And I'm not sure I could do it again, because they did some incredibly thorough work, super people. Uh, but they did basically find that we needed £10 million backing to get started. And given it at the time, all we had was a PowerPoint, some ideas, and you know, no MVP. And because it's a regulated sector, you can't really set up an MVP for nothing the way you do in, in some other sectors. We really did kind of face the prospect of having to go pitching investors for £10 million, just cold. So uh, we actually, um, we chickened out, you know, put the business plan away and got on doing other things. And it was only a few years later when I met Simon Rogerson, who's the founder of Octopus Capital, Octopus Group, and, and discovered that not only did they run one of the kind of leading venture capital firms in London, which I kind of knew about and really respected, but they also had three or four billion pounds invested in renewable generation in the UK. In fact, I think they were the leading solar uh, investors and, and realized you know, that maybe they'd be the perfect backers for this on-the-shelf business plan. And uh, so I pitched Simon, and uh, he liked the idea. In fact, it was something that he'd been wondering about as well. Uh, and he loved the formulation we brought him. And I think, you know, amazingly, that chance meeting led, I think, maybe five or six weeks later to us agreeing the deal that they would back us with £10 million. So uh, that was the beginning. So, by the way, I should address the, um, the name because... <laughs> Uh, like we pitched them originally on, on, on an energy business. I think it was going to be called Positive Energy or something kind of equally generic. And we loved it. We had a great logo, all that stuff. But just before we agreed the deal, Simon said, by the way, would you mind calling it Octopus Energy? 
And, and our first reaction was like, oh, tentacles and rubber and suckers and stuff like that. You know, we, we went away and we tried to see, could we make it cute and human and approachable? And, and we did. And, and we fell in love with it. And then Simon said, maybe we don't call it octopus energy just in case it goes wrong. And we're like, oh, but now we love it. Anyway, so we almost tossed a coin on it. And between us, I think they, this is one of the best decisions we've made because in a market where people so often forget who their energy supplier is, you never forget octopus. And I think it's been a great gift to us. It's a great reminder, isn't it, that you know uh, some of the best decisions you make feel wrong to begin with, or you have to learn to see how they feel when you try them on. And, and you know, years later, I'm so grateful for Simon's suggestion. No, it's certain, I mean, it's a recognisable name. It's easy to, I mean, what, what's important as well when you're searching for brands online is it's easy to spell, it's easy to remember. So I think, yeah, you picked up, you, you hit on a winner there. That's, that's for sure. But I mean, what, what I was going to ask you though is, did, did you expect it to grow? You know, did you expect the business to grow as, as quickly as it has? You know, Russ, I, there are two parts to this. Internally, the dream was always, the belief was always that we could do this. But I was, um, I'm sorry, I was, I was nervous to say that to people because you sound like you're smoking something, right? The reality was, you know, if we looked, energy globally is a $2 trillion market. It's set to grow to maybe $4 trillion as we decarbonize transport and as, as heating moves to electricity and so on. And so, you know, it's a colossal market. And when we sat and wrote the business plan, and you got you kind of worked it bottom up. And there's a bit when we got to a quarter of a million customers in five years, and that was a revenue of 250 million pounds because people spend about a thousand pounds a year on energy. You kind of looked at it and went, wow, in five years, we think we'll have a business doing you know 250 million of revenue. That sounds scary. So we kind of, you know, we sat there and we went, but we think we can grow faster than this. And we set a stretch target of 600,000 customers in five years, 600 million of revenue. And you go like, I, you know, we found that unfathomably high. And so, you know, we didn't dare kind of say any more than that. But the reality in my head is when I worked it, when I started off at the beginning, I said, look, a 10% market share would be in the UK alone would be two and a half million customers, sort of two and a half billion of revenue. I didn't dare say that to anyone. It, it felt unrealistic, but that's what we were dreaming. And, and about 18 months ago, two years ago, now, I was on holiday in the Peak District in a deck chair sitting outside a tent and I just thought, like, look, clearly we're going to beat our initial targets. What should we be setting our targets as? And that's when I decided to just kind of be out and proud about the scale that I think we should be aiming for. Like, to stop allowing that fear of public failure, that fear of ridicule, to stop that holding back our ambition. And um, that's when we decided, look, the reality is we should be getting 100 million customers on our platform if we're going to change the world, right? We're here to make... You know, I think Steve Jobs sometimes said, you know, your job is to make a, a dent in the universe. Well, I think our job is to make a big green dent in the universe. And to do that, we've got to be big. And, and, and so 100 million customers on the platform. And if we get there, then we should keep on going. But you, you talk about the platform. I mean, one of the concepts of the business is allowing your competitors to use the same platform and the technology. At, at what point was that part of the plan? Again, it was actually all, always part of the plan we just didn't talk about it because it felt like a challenging idea the platform's interesting it's called kraken and its job is to be a complete digital platform like forgive me for the language but it's a sort of big freaking robot that can do everything from gathering the electrons from green generation right through to distributing them to consumers and charging for it and everything in between so that in essence 
we can run an energy business with no humans in the loop. Now, that doesn't mean we don't employ people, by the way. We employ people to build the robot, to improve the robot, and to do what people do best, which is have great conversations with customers to create and inspire our next set of ideas. And, and that's kind of the, the concept. But the idea of then licensing it to, to rivals, I, I suppose the first thing was it had to be good enough. And, and I've worked on a lot of tech platforms in the past, and you only ever know they're good enough when you first kind of take the wrapping off and start using them in anger. And I was blown away with Kraken. It absolutely delivered on all of our dreams and our technology team. And by the way, all the other functions in our business that worked with them to build it should be astonishingly proud of what they've done. And it was at that point that you realized you'd kind of built the equivalent of a Ferrari, just something so beautiful, so incredibly well constructed for the job it does, and so agile and fast. So uh, the idea of then licensing it is to say, look, in technology, the only defense you've got is speed. As soon as one company have done something, everyone else knows it can be done, and therefore it's worth investing effort to do it, and they can build replicas or even surpass you because they can see the proof that it was worthwhile. That's why you get all these breakthroughs. As soon as Apple had made a touchscreen phone, you had Android and you know, obviously then all the versions of Android, Samsung Galaxy, all doing it. So speed is the only defense you've got. So if you recognize that everyone is going to end up developing stuff like our platform Kraken, you say, well, hang on, better that we license it to some of them and we turn that into a source of funding that will then enable us to accelerate our mission, which, by the way, speed is our defense. So it's, it feeds the ability to compete, but also it fuels our mission to bring cheaper, greener energy globally because we can use the funds from licensing to expand into more countries, to grow our customer base, to build more technology, to drive more innovation. So it's kind of the, it's an incredibly positive feedback loop. And, and I think, uh, you know, it's definitely a yin and yang between the Octopus Energy retail business that looks after all of our customers and, and the technology business, because everything we learn in customer world enables us to make better tech. The better tech lets us look after customers better. So it's a wonderful uh, combo. So did you know the kind of business you wanted to, from the beginning um, when it comes to things like the culture, the sense of purpose, the level of service your customers would grow to expect? Yeah, there were some bits that were for me were, were, were an absolute given. So we wanted to quest into the world of green energy because the battle against climate change only ever gets more urgent. So uh, both from my own perspective, I joined Greenpeace when I was 16, right? I, you know, I've always cared passionately about calling the environment in the wider sense. But also as a business, because, you know, if, if, if we're facing this, you know, kind of crisis as a species, and if we can create a business that makes money by, you know, kind of tackling climate change, it's a huge competitive edge versus companies that have made money through causing climate change. So I think as a business, it's a huge opportunity. And as a human, it was kind of what, I mean, almost what, what I wanted us to exist for. And, and actually, very similar on uh, what we call social justice. So bringing cheaper energy. In the UK, you know, high energy bills are, you know, for a low-income household, they're the difference between being able to send your kids on a school trip or buy them a, a uniform and not being able to do those things. Or, or for a pensioner, it, it can be the difference between sitting there shivering and worrying about the hitting bills and being comfortable, right? So the moral mission, the imperative 
to do what companies should do, which is to invest and to innovate and to work unbelievably hard, to drive costs down for customers, was absolutely part of our mission. So those were non-negotiable. And the use of technology to enable this, well, we're from a technology background. That's why we saw this opportunity. So that was a given. But interesting on the customer service one, that's the, that, that was very much that came from Octopus, our investors, actually. Originally, I, I kind of I couldn't decide whether we should be like Ryanair. Forgive me, Ryanair, but I hope this is recognizable. This is going to be bonkers cheap. But in return, you know, you do it our way. You know, this is not going to be like, you know, white glove service. This is going to be, you know, you fit our mold. And, and Octopus, because Octopus basically is an investments company, has got, you know, 50,000 customers who've invested large sums of money into its funds and has got built a brand in that world for treating the investors incredibly well. Well, that kind of meant that we had to also have the same degree of incredible service that they did. And so that helps us choose that we weren't going to be Ryanair. We were going to be octopus level of service. And again, I think a bit like we talked earlier about the name, you know, I'm so glad we chose that path because what we found is there's really very little trade-off in energy between cost and service. In fact, there's virtually none. Our system that drives cost down also reduces the number of errors we make. That's what makes the service low cost, but it's also what makes for excellent service. And I think like so many other sectors, the, the combo, uh, you know, well, the technology allows this combo of dramatically better service and dramatically lower price. But that then is what enables us to do things like, uh, for three years in a row, we've been recommended by which we're the only company to have done that, you know, kind of across that period of time, across all three years. And it's become pretty much top of trust pilot. And I don't know, like, we've just been made the only energy company in the top, if I think the only utility in the top 30 brands companies in the UK, according to the Institute of Customer Service. So all of those things have actually then fed into the opportunity to create a differentiated brand. And, and so I, I'm really glad that we're delivering the deep stuff, the, the social justice and the real drive towards a green energy system. But actually embracing and, and loving our customers on route has been a wonderful, a wonderful way of proving that we mean it and of getting customers to buy into, buy into our mission and help us make it bigger, faster, for the good of everyone. And alongside that, you know, in terms of customer service, there's a whole part around feedback and complaints and mistakes. And from what you were saying, you sound very transparent and open uh, to actually deal with all of those types of things. So what has that been like for you? Yeah, this has been um, a, w- a wonderful living experiment in kind of just seeing what happens if you start off being transparent. Can you carry on? Right, because I think most companies over time have got the dirty secrets that they kind of brush under the carpet. And after doing that, you know, for a few years, and, and they're not evil companies, not evil, but it's just like some things are hard to, you know, kind of lean into. Right. And and so traditional training in PR and often in marketing is you kind of brush those things away. But the problem is like that means that after you've been doing that for a few years, every time you do an interview or describe what's going on with the company, you've got to remember all the secrets you can't talk about or all the kind of hidden skeletons and so really this is it it's more stressful leaning into issues on a case-by-case basis but it's less stressful in the long run 
to not have a whole pile of stuff that you're worried people might one day find out or you've got to cover up or you've got to have flim flam around. So th that was kind of the choice. And, and I think it then buys you permission, by the way, to you know have a very different set of conversations with people like regulators and government and so on because you're able to demonstrate that when you screw up, you're honest about it, that you know, it doesn't matter how many layers you pull back, you'll see the same story. And in a sector like this, you know, the need to, to build trust with people like regulators so that you can really help drive innovation and change for the good of, you know, the good of our climate and the good of customers, that transparency has really helped with that. By the way, one other quick thing on this, Trini, and, and yeah. I'm sorry to jump, but we're talking about what kind of company you want to build. And I talked a lot about the external face, uh, you know, the sort of the mission. But, but really important bit was also, you know, look, a company is a group of people and uh, the people who work there. And I think, you know, the other thing we wanted to build, and, and I think there's kind of a natural association with that transparency we're just talking about, is that essentially when we go to work, I think most of us are used to working in, for example, a corporate environment where we have to be somebody else. You, you kind of have to, I don't know, I sometimes say like, I used to work for Procter & Gamble. It was an amazing company. I'm really proud of a lot of what, you know, it does and what I learned there. But the, there was a real sense that you used to hang your personality up when you hung your coat up. And for those eight or 10 hours a day when you were working, you weren't yourself. Now, given, you know, well, I believe we only live once and work is a third of something of our waking life. It's a huge sacrifice to not be living your life during that time. So we wanted to create a company where you can live your life at work and be yourself. I think then that, you know, we'll talk, we'll talk about culture in the next episode, as we know, because it's already in the can. And, um, so there's a lot about that there, but, but you know, that was a fundamental thing we wanted us to do here was to build a company where, again, from the beginning, we would try out how much we can let people be themselves and see if we could scale something that improved the lives of workers the way that hopefully would also improve the lives of consumers. Great. Given what the, the business stands for, do you see yourself as a uh, activist CEO? It's a good question. Like, I, first of all, look, I, I'm not an activist, you know, I'm an environmentalist and I'm active, but you, you know, the way in which I drive change is, is by having helped create a company working with hundreds of great people to drive change on a massive scale for how our society provides energy, which is, you know, one of the greatest contributors to climate change. Now the difference we can make here by absolutely focusing on bringing people greener energy by changing the system to make greener energy cheaper energy by embracing technology change to do that here in the uk and globally is massively impactful and so i think my sense of environmentalism is kind of drives why that's important to me and guides you know hopefully us as a company and gives us a kind of north star in that but i think sometimes also you know when people talk about an activist you also asked the question about you know, to what extent uh, are you a campaigner or, or do you change your lifestyle? Alongside our mission renewable energy, you know, what we're trying to do there is reduce humanity's impact on the climate. And I often think about a surprising adjacency for us is veganism, because we know that farming animals is hugely damaging to the climate. And yet I still eat meat. And I think for me, like learning to handle these things that are, where, where your own habits run contrary to what you believe in or what you, 
kind of trying to achieve as a business is really is an area I think about a lot. And put aside any ethics we may have about slaughtering animals, which is already something that I think we you know, lawyers might feel bad about. But on top of that, you know, the climate impact, the fact that it takes I mean, something like nine times as much resource input to generate one unit of food in meat than it does in veg, never mind the fact that cows are belching methane, right? Given our job is tackling climate change, you know, uh, the fact that I eat meat and I know all the things I've just said, you know, it, it makes me uncomfortable. But I think that the solution there is, of course, it is great when people go vegan. I think it's absolutely fantastic. By our company, we've got so many vegans working in our company. Um, and, and I'm proud that we've got people who care and live that life. But for people who don't, kind of, I think finding ways to enable those lives we are leading to be less damaging is, is the mission that Octopus is always on. And so it's so I was with our leadership team and we're talking about what are the markets we might go into. And of course, people go, oh, well, you really good customer service and utilities. Maybe you should do broadband or water. And it's like, no, maybe. But actually, the thing that's most consistent with our mission will be to, uh, to do meat-free meat. Right uh, to provide people with plant-based alternatives to meat, or indeed, you know, kind of the stuff that's sort of cultured meat. Now, by the way, we have no plans to do that. We don't have the IP and so on. But you know, just to help understand where our view, my view of the world, is that would be the most obvious market for us to be in if we weren't in energy, because it will radically improve the impact that humans have on the planet, whilst living lives but also it democratizes things right you, you know it will bring down the cost of basically meat style foods so that people that can't currently afford meat can afford an equivalent to meat and it's non-damaging and it's going to be just like that with green energy right so you know, part of our job as we globalize energy is we'll also end up being able to bring green energy to countries and communities that have never had reliable energy right but it'll be clean energy and cheap energy from the beginning so to me this these kind of opportunities to improve lives globally through the technology and developments that we're able to lead is something that I find immensely exciting. Okay, let's let's go back to the conversation about growing the business. Um, you've clearly been heavily involved in all those early stages to get the business to where you are today. But as it continues to grow and gets much larger you can't possibly be involved in in everything so like decisions around recruitment for example yeah so well recruitment is a great example isn't it because i think when we first started i used to interview every new starter um and then one day i came into the office and there was someone i didn't recognize i was like whoa who's that person and i was like oh they're the new i was like And, and, and very quickly i began to feel quite a sense of kind of dislocation of disconnection from the business that i kind of felt of as as my own and um, learning to handle that and to relax and let go because so much of the culture we will talk about in the next episode is about learning to let go and learning to decentralize. And that was an early kind of example of it for me. But at the same time, I think there are special things about being a, a founder-led business. In most companies, when, when you um, get a new CEO, similarly, like you get a new mission. And, and most companies, they basically have to try and retrofit a mission and a purpose to whatever it is they happen to be doing. Whereas in a founder-led business, you were started because someone had a mission. And everyone who joins a company is kind of like contributing to being part of delivering that mission. I, I sometimes think it's like, you know, the, the sort of 
yeah, the, the founder is like the spine and then everyone that's joining is part of the flesh of this body, you know? And, and I think that question about recruitment then is, it's still really important for me to be in touch with the people joining. So in our biggest function operations, uh, which is our biggest recruiting function, I think every week or two, I sit down with all of the new recruits and have a really open Q&A and try and get to know them. And it helps me understand the kind of people that are joining our company and we'll be looking after our customers and we'll be building the, you know, our future leaders. But it also lets them kind of grill me on the extent to which the stuff that they heard in the recruitment process, you know, how real is that? You know, what are the difficult questions? And they're fantastic sessions. So I think a lot of the time is saying, like, as you scale, the way in which you delivered your magic may change, but you're still finding ways of delivering the exact same magic and staying true to that mission and staying true to that culture. Whether whether we've got five people, 50, 500, or maybe one day 5,000. Well, talking of missions and in the spirit of transparency, quite often a founder-led business that has taken on huge investment, normally there is a kind of another objective, let's say, of of a potential exit. You know, and so so I'd be just interested to know what your plans for the future, because obviously you're you're looking to expand the business into new territories. But do you do you have an exit strategy for, for Octopus Energy? Yeah, it's funny, isn't it? So look, in, in five years, four years, we can be proud we've gone from zero to being, you know, a reasonably recognized brand. Although, by the way, fewer than half the people in the UK have heard of us, so we've you know, still got a long way to go there. You know, but with a and at scale, you know, sort of revenue close to two billion pounds, and now opening up in lots of countries and and certainly being an opinion forming kind of leader in our market with government regulator and increasingly internationally. So we can be really proud of that. At the same time, we're still a minnow, right? Like, uh, I said earlier, energy globally is worth about $2 trillion a year. That'll grow to $4 trillion. Well, if we're at £2 billion, pounds, what's that? We're roughly 0.1% global market share. So, you know, there's a lot of room for growth. Now, that growth, by the way, will be sometimes expensive, hence taking on investors. But we're taking on investment to grow, not because it's mission over. You know, we've barely begun stage two of this rocket. And so, yes, I'm looking at stage three and four and where we go in future. But we have got so much growth first. By the way, that's just in our core energy retail business. Never mind, you know, the fact that we've got, you know, electric vehicle leasing today. Maybe tomorrow we stop selling people electrons and gas molecules. Instead, we sell them solar panels to make their own, right? Or batteries to store it when the sun's not shining. You know, the amount of, of opportunity that, that lays ahead of us based on what we've built so far totally dwarfs where we are today. In fact, sometimes I say it's like, like it's like climbing a mountain. You know, we've climbed a long way. And if we look down the hill, we'd be really, really proud. But if we look up the hill, we've got a lot further to go. Thanks for that, Greg. It was great talking to you. For those listening, if you have any comments on what Greg spoke about today, please get in touch via the website, and that's octopus.energy, or contact us via the usual social channels. But for now, from me, Trudy Lewis, and my co-host, Russell Goldsmith, thanks for listening, and goodbye. Goodbye.